Today on Between the Lines, an actress who first stole our hearts in the classic film American Graffiti and then came into our living rooms to fill us with laughter, the charming and talented Cindy Williams. Welcome, I'm Barry Kibrick. As part of the iconic comedy series Laverne and Shirley, Cindy, as the working-class gal Shirley Feeney, entertained millions with her charm and comedic timing. Now with her book, Shirley I Jest, she shares her heartfelt journey and struggles with wit and candor. I'm a writer today because I was a reader when I was 11 years old, and it was... You You do not need to prove your state of happiness to anybody. Most of these speeches were as much as a month in preparation. The characters, the heroes in this book, are seekers of truth in, in a story that, that involved a lot of corruption. You get a chance to really talk about what's real. And uh, it's the first thing Cindy, this is a treat, as you could tell from everyone in the green room to all the crew. Having you here on Between the Lines is just an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Well, it's just an honor to be here. I'm so happy you invited me, and it's going to be a bunch of fun. I know that. Uh, well, let's start off with what you, the subtitle I want to start off. It's a storied life, but the truth is <clears throat> you made it a storied life because it wasn't, quote, unquote, a storied life. It was a life filled with struggles, with dad in the beginning, with with work, with all sorts of things. So that attitude, though, must still exist within you because when you start reading it, anything but storied would come to mind. What do you mean by that, Barry? I mean that it's it's a struggle. Life is a struggle. Yes, and it it's is. not always a Prince Charming storied type of life. That's right. And that's what I found fascinating is that you still have the vision of it being so beautiful, no matter what the struggle oh, is. Oh, well, that, that's a great compliment, and I thank you for that. When I, when I set about to write the book, I had intended only to write anecdotes and fun stories about, you know, my career and all the blessings that uh, I've had in my, in my life. And I didn't want to delve into my childhood, per se, and anything that was a downer. And I was asked to write about my childhood and to begin it there and to, um, and to add that, you know, that beat to it. And that's how it became a storied life. Well, you know something though, that is what the viewers and the readers though really can relate to. It's hard for us to relate to the famous Cindy Williams, but it's not to the down to earth Cindy Williams who struggles like we struggle to this day who deals with issues that we deal with. And that when I find when you brought those things out, that's what touched me about the book, even it, although it is a hilarious read as well. Thank I mean, there's you. no doubt about it, but it's that passion that you shared with us. Well, I wanted to, um, I wanted to take the reader with me. I wanted it to be in my voice and take the reader with me uh, every beat that I took in the book. And and beginning with my childhood, which wasn't a very happy childhood, and my father was, um, you know, he was an alcoholic, and so it was, as you said, a struggle for me as a child, as it is for any child uh, who has an alcoholic parent they must deal with. But I didn't want to, the reader to read the book and say, oh, I've got to close that for now. Do you know what I mean? And so the trick was to keep the truth 
and yet to make it buoyant and, 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 and move it along and say it like it was and then move off of it. And there are some things like my sister said, you're not going to tell the story about when daddy. And I said, no, 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 not that my father did anything. You know, I didn't, I don't want to allude to that, that my father did anything like, um, you know, sexual with us or anything like that. But my father could be, when he drank, very, he could be vicious. I mean, he could be. But he was also a splendid human being when he was sober. And I, to try and balance that and to try and, and, and begin a book that I wanted to be mirthful and fun for the reader, to, to do that, I, I, I chose, I didn't, yes, I did. I cherry picked. But I left enough things in there that, um, show the truth of what it was. And you do. You get the sense of the love that you and your dad still had. Except though, you also get the sense of the fear. And I I thought what you got the sense of, and as a young girl, that you had to keep a secret. You had to keep it from (laughs) mom that you were out there with dad who was, you know, put you in the cab of his car and then went into a bar and would be drinking and he made you say don't tell mom and I think for young kids secrets are probably the hardest things to bear well that's like Suzanne Summers first book keeping secrets because and it's the tale of her being the child of an alcoholic and that's exactly what it is Barry you hit on that children of alcoholics do keep the secret they don't want anyone to know my father um, you know made me keep the secret of him taking me out at night to the bars while my mother worked uh, as a waitress and, you know, worked the late shift in Dallas. And um, and my father would just, when she'd go to work, put me in the cab of the truck and off we'd go. He'd buy me a bag of candy and I, he'd lock the doors and the truck would be parked right in front of, ironically enough, I remember this, there were signs, neon signs flashing on and off and it said Schlitz, Schlitz. Schlitz. I don't know if I put that in the book or not. Well, you know, and then I keep thinking Schlitz is in Schlitz. Exactly. Schlitz is the, right. the, the brewery Exa- that was exactly. the right. from Laverne and Shirley. Or it would say Paps, you know, Paps, oh. Paps. But I remember eating my uh, uh, candy and, and watching that sign flash on and off and praying that my dad would come out and be somewhat sober enough to get us home. Before I want to leave your childhood, the one thing, well, two, two things I want to touch on. One is anxiety. You oh. really felt it. And I think the world today, I don't know anyone that is not feeling anxiety. So I thought I read this. Come on, Barry, no. you can name three people. I can't, Come on, right now, name no. three people who aren't suffering. Name them. They're on Sesame Street. <laughs> <laughs> there isn't. Everyone has oh, it. I know. And, it's and, and it's and a nail-biting time. It, I'm it, telling you, Barry. But, but you realized it even as a young girl. And, and, and that led to some interesting ways of coping and that it's it's interesting when we take our our anxieties and our emotions and we actually fight through them it's amazing what comes out that's on right. the other side that's right and my dad he well he was the reason for my anxiety and he was a lot of the reason uh why I could fight it and fight my way out because he had this marvelous sense of humor. And so I, I did learn at an early age how to make lemonade out of lemons and how to, you know, calm myself down with humor. Well, you know, and then you, you, you actually, your parents split for a while. Mm-hmm. 
And you then, at four years old, end up becoming a caretaker for Mama Helen, your, your that's grandmother. Right, Mama Helen. And that's again a, 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 a bit of a burden on a child, but yet you loved her. And I could tell, even if it was a burden, you were taking that burden and somehow, I don't know if it was, you can't, I don't think at four years old it could have been consciously, but somehow you, you smelled or sensed that I'm doing the right thing here. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. Well, as a child, when you're four years old and you're put in a situation like that where you're left alone with an elderly person, let's say, or any situation that's similar to that, that's really overwhelming if you think about it for a four-year-old or, or a child. Um, and I was her caregiver, basically. She was crippled, but she watched me because she was the adult in the house, the um you know, the, the woman that my grandmother rented the front bedroom to in Dallas. And uh, she taught me how to play solitaire. And she, I'd brush, she had this long hair, gray hair, and I'd brush it. And she'd let me brush it and I'd braid it. And we'd watch TV together, um, everything but the wrestling matches. What, once my grandma got the TV, uh, we'd watch uh, soap <laughs> operas together. And um, when you're a child like that, you don't think of it as this is uh, an insurmountable situation I'm in. You just go with the flow as best you can. And, um, and it becomes a real part of what is natural to you. Well, perfect segue. Thank you. You set me right up. Okay. <laughs> because what was natural to you, even though you were shy, talking about another thing that you had to mm -hmm. overcome. It's mm -hmm. hard to believe that you're shy after entertaining everyone in the green room, but you, your shyness could not quell that desire for you to entertain and perform. And as a young child, you put on plays for the neighborhood kids. You did these things. You found your calling at a very early age, whether you even realized it or not. But don't you believe, Barry, that God imbues that into you, that you know the nature of your own being, that what, I mean, that's the thing you're driven to. I'm, you're born with that. I can't imagine. Now, I wanted to be a nurse when I, you know, when I was in high school. I was thinking, I'll go to nursing school and become an RN. Uh, that's what I wanted to do. I didn't have the talent for it. I didn't have uh, the God-given gift for it. But I had this God-given gift for humor. And looking back on it, it's just what, it's like a gymnast. It's like an Olympic gymnast. You can feel it in your body. And so that's what you're moved toward. And that's what moved me. It moved me toward it. No, it wasn't anything that I did consciously. I just, right. it was m my nature. And it also was a salvation. Absolutely. Because, you know, yes. in fact, by the way, you know, you, you entered the drama class in high school at first mm -hmm. and then later on in L.A. College. And I remember even in, when I was in school, 
I remember many kids who felt like outcasts found refuge in the drama class. That's right. And I found refuge in the drama class in high school. It was like I was safe there. I mean, my dad was still drinking and carrying on, and it was crazy at home. And I didn't want any of my friends coming to my house because we were didn't have good furniture. We had no furniture and other th- reasons. And because my father could go off if he was drinking. But in theater, when I was introduced to Shakespeare and just all, you know, the great uh, plays of the World Theater, it was like I wasn't alone. I, I had all those characters, those beautiful words, those, that wonderful proscenium that was another life that was, became real to me and my family and my salvation. Well, you know, you, you, you realized even then you said it was fate. You, as you said before, mm-hmm. you, you felt that the God imbued this in you. But you really, as a young person, as you're growing up, realized then that it really was fate, that, that you got into to this profession. Yes, because I wanted to be, you know, I thought, well, because everyone, was, I went to a, uh, it was a public school, very academic. I mean, everyone was so smart in my high school. And I felt that I must become something wonderful like that in an academic way. And I did want to be a nurse. And uh, except God did not give me any kind of academic talent whatsoever. <laughs> and I took uh, chemistry, no, not chemistry. I took biology twice and once in summer school. And with all those grades put together, I got a C minus. And I thought, who the heck wants a nurse who got a C minus in biology? And um, I knew I wasn't going to pass my SATs. I just knew it. I knew it as much as I knew I could be funny. Now, you mentioned Gary Marshall and Fred mm-hmm. Roos, and that's how you you, you get your start. But while right before you do, you are doing the classic waitress business oh, in yeah. Hollywood. But one of the great moments, though, had to be the time you're at the whiskey and oh. you meet Jim Morrison. And he plays a practical joke on you. And you realize it's almost like the greatest honor that there could be. Here is this guy, you even describe him as this Adonis, this angel of a man. And he plays this practical joke on you. Yes, he was wonderful. Well, it was my first night at the Whiskey, and it was 1967, you know, on the Sunset Strip in Hollywood. And I had quit my job at Ye Piccadilly Deli. I remember that, and that's where I learned to love cream soda. Anyway, but I had to quit my job there in order to get this job waiting cocktails at the Whiskey A Go-Go. So the first night they gave me the VIP section, I thought, whoa. This must be because I am a primo waitress because I just came from the IHOP from college. I waited tables at also at the International House of Pancakes along with Ye Piccadilly Deli. So I get the VIP section and the waitresses say, and there's your first table right there. So I go over and there's two blondes and a man who has his back to me. And I'll never forget this. I asked the two ladies, uh, what would you like? And one's Tom Collins and Tom Collins. And the other one says, Tom Collins. I go, Tom Collins. I wonder what that is. And then I say, and you, sir? And he turns around and it's Jim Morrison. And I'm like, ah, bah, 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 bah. And, and he's so gorgeous. And it's like the light just hit him in the perfect way. And he says to me, I'll have a bottle of Jack. And I said, bottle of Jack. 
Daniels. So I run to the bartender whose name was Tony and I put my ticket up and he, and I starting to go away and he goes, Hey, you, new girl, what is this? And I said, uh, to Tom Collins, bottle of Jack. He goes, bottle of Jack? No, 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 no. We can't serve a bottle of Jack to the table. And I go, Oh, well, you know, it's for, he goes, is Morrison in the club? And I said, <laughs> yes. Yes, he is. It's Jim Morrison. <laughs> and he said, well, you go back and tell him he knows perfectly well I can't serve a bottle of Jack at the table. I can give him a double or a single, no bottle of Jack. And I go, okay. I go back to the table. I say, Mr. Morrison, sir, I'm so sorry, but I'm not allowed to serve you a bottle of Jack at the table. I can bring you a single or a double, but no bottle of Jack. And he says, who's tending bar, Tony? And I said, yes. He said, well, you go back and tell that so-and-so. I've had a bottle of Jack at the table before, and I want a bottle of Jack on the table tonight. So I give pause for a moment, and then I go back to Tony, and I said, he, you know, he wants his bottle of Jack on the table. He says, well, he can't have a bottle of Jack on the table. Anyway, it goes back and forth and back and forth like this until I'm in tears and other customers are trying to garner my attention. And finally, Jim Morrison takes my hand and he asks me my name. And this was very big in the 60s and no one remembers this but me. Anyway, he takes my hand, asks me my name, and I say, Cindy. And he said, well, Miss Cindy, we're just playing with you. Bring me a double. And I look around and all the waitresses, the bartenders, the busboys, oh. everybody is laughing at me. <laughs> and they had punked me. <laughs> and I but, but who better than Jim oh, Morrison was, to punk you, great. huh? And he, and he, you know, he was just so sweet. It was such an honor. It was like humiliating at, at first. And then I thought, no, wait a minute. This is kind of an honor, you know, to have Jim Morrison pay that much attention to me. Now, doesn't take too long, and you're cast in what becomes one of the American iconic films, American Graffiti. Correct. And then you, in one of my favorite films, Fred, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, mm -hmm. and then the bottom falls out. Right. And that's, to me, when when you smell the success and the bottom falls out, I always find that has to be harder than not smelling the success. Oh, yeah. You start smelling something else. <laughs> it's not good. Anyway, yeah, that was. But you know what? It harkens back to that, to my childhood and to lemons, you know, and lemonade. And I, I, I took it on the chin. I was okay with it. And I just steadied myself and a lot of prayer and steadied myself and said, well, what if I never work again? What if this is the end? Well, what am I going to do? And then I started making plans to go out of town to wait tables, to move to, um, to Oregon, um, to this little town, Eugene, uh, that I had done this little part in a movie that Jack Nicholson had directed called Drive, he said. And I felt fallen in love with this town and I, I knew I couldn't wait tables in, LA because I was recognizable with my peers and it was like really humiliating for me. And so I thought I'll just go for a year, collect myself, collect enough money because I was dumb out of money, you know, also. And um, my mother was about to um, give me my last month's rent on my place in LA and then I was moving up to Oregon uh, and then uh, other things occurred and that stopped me. Well, 
You did mention Gary Marshall. Yes. And the first thing he does is he he becomes your manager, I guess, to That's some right. extent. And he, and he pairs you and his sister Penny first as writers. Well, this was actually Fred Roos, who was his partner in, in Compass Management, which was the management company that Gary Marshall and Fred Roos established and for young talent. And um, Francis Coppola was uh, producing a bicentennial spoof called, uh, titled My Country, Tis of Thee. And it was, they were getting teams of writers together to write sketches, and it was going to uh, depict sketches de- in comedy terms and musical terms to depict the building of America, you know, coming to America and, and the establishment of America to 1976. And, um, uh, and so, I was teamed with Penny Marshall as a writing uh, team. And Gary obviously sees the dynamics. He's created Happy Days, and he says, says, I need a Laverne and a Shirley. (laughs) Well, yes, and we were in our little office writing, and the phone rang, and it was Gary, and Penny talks to him for a minute. She goes, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. She goes, Gary wants to talk to you, Cindy. And so he says, I was just asking Penny uh, if you girls would take off uh, a week and come over and do a Happy Days episode and play these girls who date the fleet. And I thought, oh, that sounds like fun. And uh, I thought, and that will make me enough money so I can stay in town for another month or so. So uh. so we go over and we play these two girls. Penny and I had never seen the show. And I didn't have a TV at the time. And I knew kind of what it was about because my sister was an extra on the show. And uh, But having read the script and having Gary describe the girls as two girls who date the fleet, Penny and I just decided, well, you know, they'll be smoking, chewing gum, fixing each other's bra straps, you know, taking pin curls out of each other's hair. When we enter, that we talked about it. And so we did just that, smoking cigarettes, and we enter, and we, we're, we take each other's pin curls and fluff each other's hair and, you know, adjust each other's bra straps and look around the room and, and see Fonzie and, and Richie on the other side of the room. She goes, there they are. This is the first rehearsal, mind you. We take the final drag off our cigarettes, flick our cigarettes across the room, and Jerry Paris, who was directing, screams, stop! What are you doing? See, you don't smoke on in family hour. There's no smoking on television. And we, we were so frightened. And we said, we're sorry. Well, okay. We'll lose the cigarettes. He goes, yes, you will lose the cigarettes and a lot of that other stuff you're doing. So we go back and we go, what's family hour? We go back stage together and what, what is family hour? So we adjust it and we come back on and we, we're just chewing gum and we take each other's pin curls out and, and see the boys across the room and wave to them. And that was, but when we first, the way we interpreted it, the two characters was real floozy-ish, you know, cigarette smoking, gum chewing broads. But then the spinoff, I mean, one of the most successful spinoffs of all times, the premiere was 36 million people. And you just become an icon. I mean, you, you, you heard my wife talk about her, her brother who, and you, everybody here. It becomes an iconic show in the minds of America. I, you know, I guess so. I mean, Penny and I are still 
trying to figure that one out. I mean, we see it. And, and while we were doing it, we were just trying to make it laugh out loud funny. That was our goal. Laugh out loud funny. Stay true to these two girls who were working girls like us. And, um, and, and it never struck us when, when Gary came down and said, Oh my God, the overnights, it's 36 million or whatever he said. But we knew it was, we had, we never processed it ever. And I don't think to this day, sometimes I'll go over and see Penny and I'll go, you know, I caught a glimpse of the, a clip of the show and there was this thing that made me laugh out loud. I didn't even know it was us. I turned around in this room and that happened to me. It's happened a couple of times. And I said, and I burst out laughing at whatever was going on. And I, and I remember telling her, you should take a look at the dinosaur show because you'll, it'll make you laugh and you'll be very pleased with yourself. But we're the kind of people, Penny and myself, who are never pleased with ourselves. You know, it's just like, oh, God. we were ne- we never thought we were the popular girls or the, you know, and, and that's, I think, part of the dynamic of the show and why it was successful. We were part of that blue collar, you know, working class wolf always nipping at your heels, trying to get the rent together, trying to get the elect, you know, electric bill paid off. And we stayed true to that. And, um, and we had to have some arguments sometimes about staying true to that. Well, you know, something, I think that truth is what came out. And I think on the small screen, the truth can never be really hidden. And our time is up. It is? It is, Cindy. No, (laughs) Barry. I'm sorry, but I must tell you, you really did make a lot of us and continue to make us laugh, make us care for those people because you did hit that, that part that we all could relate to. Oh, well, thank you, Barry. What a compliment. Thank you. My pleasure. And thank you guys for joining us. And now before Cindy leaves... I'd like to leave you with these few more words from Shirley, I jest. Penny and I had a simple litmus test for comedy. If it didn't make us laugh, it probably wouldn't make the audience laugh. So whatever it was, we had to laugh at it or we try something else until we did. I'm Barry Kibrick. We all experience the ups and downs of life. Between them all, laugh or try something else until you do. Thank you so much, Shirley. Thank you so much, Barry. Oh, I love that. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to hear more, please subscribe or become a patron of the show at barrykibrick.com to keep it going every week. Thank you.